Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, the Milton Police Department will use grant funding to help officers with de-escalation tactics and other skill sets. Well, the goal, besides officer training, is also better community policing. I'll speak with Police Chief Rich Austin. Also, we'll learn more about the latest two-shot COVID-19 vaccine developed by Novavax. It's reportedly 90% effective against the virus. Now, those conversations are coming up. But first, this. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms is welcoming President Joe Biden's Community Violence Intervention Intervention Collaborative. Now, Atlanta joins 15 districts that will use a portion of the American Rescue Plan funding to combat this crime, this increase in crime. In a statement, the mayor cited, quote, Atlanta and communities across the nation are grappling with a complex public health epidemic in the form of violence. She went on to thank the Biden administration for, quote, giving the people of Atlanta the resources and support needed to address the immediate and systemic issues of what she calls this COVID crime wave. Now, President Biden and U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced the administration's strategy to prevent gun-related crimes and to help cities in addressing the spikes in violent crime. Community-led efforts are vital to preventing violence before it occurs. The Justice Department has available over $1 billion in funding through over a dozen grant programs that can be used to support evidence-based community violence intervention strategies. That is U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland. Now, violent crime has been a community issue, and also we expect many of the mayoral candidates to be part of their agenda. Now, from our WABE newsroom, Georgia's public university system has a new leader, at least for the time being. The Board of Regents tapped Teresa McCartney as, quote, acting chancellor of the state's 26 public colleges and universities, The current chancellor, Steve Wrigley, will step down July 1st. Now, McCartney has served as vice chancellor for administration since 2019. Before joining the university system, she worked as a state budget director under former governor Nathan Deal. And McCartney's appointment means the regents haven't decided who actually will permanently lead the system. When word leaked the board was considering former governor Sonny Perdue for the job, well, the system's accredited agency warned appointing him could put the system's accreditation at risk. That prompted the regents to pause the search. They've since switched search firms and resumed the process of looking for the university system's next leader. And finally, game one of the NBA's Eastern Conference Championship between the Atlanta Hawks and Milwaukee Bucks kicked off last night. And in case you don't know the outcome, take a listen. So how are they going to find an answer for this man right here? Oh, my goodness. All right. Oh, no, he didn't. With a little shake no, of he shoulder didn't. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He just shook his shoulder. 
Gallinari goes behind the back, shoots the three, and hits. Shot, it is off. Rebound is back tap, taken by Young, who fires to the crowd, and the Atlanta Hawks have come up with an upset. Believe. Game two is tomorrow night up in Milwaukee. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, Rose Scott. As mentioned just a moment ago, President Joe Biden and Attorney General Merrick Garland yesterday announced the administration's strategy to prevent gun-related crimes and to help cities in addressing these spikes in violent crimes. Community-led efforts are vital to preventing violence before it occurs. The Justice Department has available over $1 billion in funding through over a dozen grant programs that can be used to support evidence-based community violence intervention strategies. Now, overall, since last year, the nation as a whole is experiencing a significant rise, for example, in murders. This occurred during 2020. And the FBI has released new data showing that this rise and it, the final numbers won't be released until September, but they've released data showing that the increase could be as much as 25 percent. Now, couple this also during a time when police departments are evaluating their own standard operating procedures. Of course, this spurred by last year's many protests regarding policing and especially in communities of color. Now, the Milton Police Department will use funding from a grant to help their officers with de-escalation tactics and other skill sets. And joining me now to talk more about this is Milton's police chief, Rich Austin. Chief, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good to talk with you. Thanks for having us on. We're very excited about this grant opportunity and what we're going to be able to do with it. So thank you very much. Let's begin, though, Chief, overall, with your thoughts on what a lot of major cities are grappling with. And of course, that's the significant increase in crime. What do you make of that? Uh, there's certainly many factors uh, involved, and certainly coming out of COVID and, and, and many other factors. Um, it, it is a problem. As a matter of fact, I was just on a, a town hall meeting with the Police Executive Research Forum uh, yesterday, uh, and we had several major city chiefs on talking about what they were doing in each of their cities to combat this problem. It's, it's a wicked problem, uh, mm-hmm. very, uh, very concerning. So it's something that I'm, I'm keeping apprised of. And Chief, many experts and researchers cite the many effects of the pandemic can be attributed to this this overall rise in crime. They cite unemployment, mental health being at the core. You also subscribe to that theory. Uh, Yes, in in many ways. um, uh, Certainly uh, taking a look at the data is very important to me. And uh, I keep apprised of of the issues, but that's what we are seeing. I think a lot of folks, uh, you brought up the mental health aspect of it. A lot of folks couldn't get connected to services, mm-hmm. make appointments and, and things of that nature. So uh, certainly that does seem pragmatic. You know, Chief, going back to last summer, have you looked at the city of Milton's crime stats? And if, if any, was there an increase in any specific crimes since 2019 that you saw increasing last year? Actually, we saw significant drops uh, last year in crime. Our, our calls for service were down. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was a bit surprising. I was uh, certainly uh, pleased, but uh, a bit surprising. But we, we have a full-time crime analyst that is continually uh, helping us try to identify crime trends. And we try to address those trends as they emerge to uh, continue to keep Milton one of the safest cities in Georgia. 
And Chief, the city of Milton is relatively small in terms of population, just under 40,000. Correct me if I'm wrong. Do you feel the size of your police department matches a city of the size of Milton? It does. There are a lot of factors that uh, are involved. As a matter of fact, our, our recent census puts us at just over 40,000 folks. Mm-hmm. So, um, we are a growing city. Uh, but we are, every year we do a staff analysis and readjust as needed. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm uh, going through that process uh, now uh, and looking at some ways that we can best serve our citizens, perhaps with some additional personnel. What's the size of your department, Chief, in terms of officers and not in, not including administrative uh, personnel, but officers who are answering calls, who are out in the community? Right. We have 42 sworn folks, and that includes me and my command staff. Uh, and then we have um, our, the bulk of our officers are the officers out on patrol and the supervisors and the, the command staff that, uh, that handle our uniform patrol division. And Chief, you look at the city of Milton in terms of demographics, I think it's just about 73 percent white, 11 percent black, nearly 13 percent Asian and about 6 percent Hispanic or that identifies Latino. How diverse is your police department? Does it in any way sort of match in terms of what you feel is, is adequate in terms of, you know, having officers that, that match the demographics of the city? Uh, yes, we are continually working through our recruiting staff to uh, recruit um, a, a diverse team of officers. It's not as diverse as I would like for it to be. It is very important, uh, but we have made strides in that uh, in, in recent years and up until this week, <laughs> I can say. Uh, we'll be bringing uh, an officer on that will provide some diversity to to our team. So something we're always looking at um, right, right now, recruiting and retention, very difficult uh, just to find qualified applicants. Uh, but we really widen that net to um, to look for a diverse applicant pool. I've talked to so many um, police chiefs and they've said retention is an issue. Uh, whether it's a, a large city like Atlanta or, or a small city like the city of Milton. And they cite, for some officers, particularly since last year, um, stress and also just concerns in terms of their own mental health and being able to do the job. Do you Have you had officers talk to you about that? As a matter of fact, um, a few months ago we did a survey and um, put it out to our officers and as part of a, a larger wellness initiative. And several of our officers did identify the just the national uh, stress uh, that, that they see as far as policing. Um, it did have an impact on their day-to-day wellness. As a matter of fact, we took that information and we were able to bring in a certified counselor that works uh, uh, with a firm that uh, is specific to law enforcement, mm-hmm. able to come in and do roll call training for all of our officers uh, to give our officers some tools that they can use to handle that day-to-day stress and to ensure that they're taking care of themselves uh, because certainly we want officers out on the street that are that are um, mentally well mentally prepared uh, to do the job it's very uh, can sometimes be a dangerous job certainly a stressful job mm-hmm. we want them to be prepared to do that so certainly yeah chief let me ask you this because you have more than 25 years of law enforcement experience how did you deal with stress or if you were feeling maybe headed towards some type of mode of burnout, how did you deal with it back then? If you experienced it, maybe you didn't. Uh, Fortunately, I was with a department that was uh, very progressive in this area. Uh, We had peer support. Um, So there were, there were uh, folks out there uh, to, to, to speak with. Um, I personally have have been involved, you know, my faith community in Mm -hmm. that. So 
that has helped me through through the years to be able to um, to handle that that day to day stress. Uh, and interestingly, I have a, a lot of outside hobbies that um, that help me get away from police work. Um, I, uh, I play trombone in, in the Alpharetta Symphony. Okay. I, uh, involved in many other groups and, and things. So I, I think that's that's key to help helping reduce that stress. Officers need to, to, to get out of that mode every once in a while and find some quiet time to just kind of recharge the batteries. And that, that's how I do it. And I encourage the officers that work for me to, to do the same. Chief, let me ask you this. How do you define community policing as we get set to talk about this grant that you all have? And a lot of it is around how your officers are able to work within the community and we hear this term a lot uh, and I ask folks about defining effective community policing if they like that term what do you think sure um yeah community policing is certainly needs to be core um within every police agency in my opinion uh it's very important within the Milton Police Department and and that means working in partnership with the community Mm -hmm ensuring that we're addressing the community needs, getting community input uh, for the decisions that we make. Uh, one stride that we made within the Milton Police Department was uh, late last year, I developed a chief's advisory board. And part of that board was to be, um, uh, I wanted that board to be a wide cross section of our community. So I'm, I'm hearing all the voices from our community and they do serve strictly in an advisory capacity, but I really rely on their voice and their perspective as I make decisions about initiatives within the police department. So doing those things and, and certainly being out in the community and being engaged uh, is very important uh, to the way we um, do policing in Milton. Well, let's talk about that because now your department has been awarded a grant to offer officers what you all call, quote, simulated scenarios to bolster de-escalation and defensive ta- tactics, knowledge, skill set, and philosophy. Let's take these one by one. First, this Scenarios to bolster de-escalation and defensive tactics knowledge. What's that about? Yes, this is um, just kind of a natural step towards the training that we've already been doing. Uh, we require all of our officers to go through crisis intervention training, which uh, is specific to helping de-escalate situations mm-hmm. where folks are experiencing some type of mental crisis or perhaps a chemically induced crisis. Uh, and it's very good training. It's scenario-based. Uh, and the state of Georgia also requires our officers to have yearly uh, de-escalation training as well, uh, which does involve some type of uh, video scenarios that the officers go through and make some decisions. And while I think that provides a very good basic framework, uh, as the chief, what what I saw um, that, that we could do better was to put officers in actual scenarios. And that's something that I tasked our training staff uh, with creating, which prompted the uh, application for this grant. They saw this opportunity for a de-escalation grant, and uh, there has, has been phenomenal uh, technology advancements in this area. So we will be able to, perhaps through a virtual reality type system, put officers in situations where they have to make split-second decisions, uh, very realistic stress-induced situations, to allow them to practice uh, these de-escalation techniques that they've been learning um, and and have instantaneous feedback from trained instructors that can help them to hone these skills. It's in a controlled environment, but certainly I would, I would rather an officer uh, make a misstep in training to be able uh, to correct that than, than certainly out on the street. And that's what this training is, is aiming to do is, is to help those officers really 
hone in on the skills. And will this take place on site near your department or will the officers go to a separate location? Uh, it depends on the type of, of actual training we, we go with. We just secured the funds. We have a year, so I'm exploring that with my training staff now. We do have, I think, some opportunities to do it here at our new public safety complex, and uh, that is top on my list uh, to be able to do it here uh, and, um, and utilize our, our new space for that. And, and Chief, when we talk about skill set and philosophy, because mindset can be something that you just can't teach overnight and something that may take a, a long time. When you talk about skill set and philosophy, how do you see that being, how do you teach that to your officers? First of all, we have our framework of our department's mission, vision, and values. And that's something that uh, I, I met with every officer as I went through that process of developing our, our new mission, vision, and values. And so we are infusing that throughout the organization and developing a culture um, where we are, we see ourselves as guardians of our community. And, and that's stated very clearly in our mission statement, um, being uh, treating folks in, in, a, in a fair manner, uh, through a, in a procedurally just manner. Those types of things I think are very important uh, for our officers to understand uh, as they go about their day-to-day -day duties. And Chief, is this training gonna be mandatory for all the officers? Absolutely, absolutely. All of our officers on the street will go through this training and um, we're certainly going to maximize uh, all of the grant funding that we will be receiving. Chief, I want to shift for a moment and get your thoughts on this, because as you know, you've heard cries of defunding the police in order to maybe shift some funding toward those other wraparound services that could complement, for some people, this is their view, could complement resources for police departments, such as, you know, perhaps having a separate division that deals with non I guess what they call non-violent emergencies and so forth. Uh, you support something like that? I mean, listen, I've never met a police chief that said, you know what, we don't need any more funding. But do you? <laughs> <laughs> but would you support more funding? Do you feel like you need more funding for these other wraparound services that could get, be helpful for your police department? Uh, well, first of all, we have a lot of, of, of calls, and we hear from the public that they want our officers to be better trained and better mm -hmm. equipped to do their jobs. And that, that certainly takes funding, uh, obviously. And, and so I, I think it's incumbent upon police use to use the funding that they receive wisely uh, to hear from the community uh, about the, uh, the things that are important to them and then direct uh, funding such as for training very wisely. I also think that we need to develop strategic partnerships with other areas of the community. Um, I, I think just wholesale removing funds from one area to another without some type of framework of strategy involved uh, is not setting us up for maximum success. Uh, I, I certainly think that, uh, you know, get back to the conversation that um, that I was listening to the police executive research forum, we were talking about the need uh, for a more holistic approach uh, in general to criminal justice. And I think that does, it involves our community, but it involves our, our mental health partners and it involves uh, all, all of these other wraparound services that, that you uh, mentioned. Uh, certainly that is important, but we need some strategy behind that mm -hmm. uh, to get that done. And, and Chief, we know that here in Georgia, if there's what they call an officer-involved uh, shooting that results in a fatality, usually the GBI comes in and will do the investigation if it involves an officer. Uh, in terms of when we talk about criminal justice reform 
and police departments. Is there something that you feel should be added or is not even talked about enough in the role of the police and the police departments that you think people should be aware of or consider? Uh, yes, certainly um, that is, is something that, that I, I think about a lot, um, how we would handle such a situation. Fortunately, that's very rare uh, in Milton. I do think it's very positive that uh, the, the GBI comes in to investigate. There, there is an outside review uh, and, and investigation that's completed. I think that that helps uh, maintain the trust and the legitimacy of the police department to have that outside review. Um, but certainly that, um, yeah, that is something that, that's certainly of concern to me. I would, I would be very interested to hear uh, other approaches to that. You mentioned the citizens advice, sort of an advisory board, but do you also have a citizen sort of review board to address whether there's some simple complaints or major complaints against an officer? What is the process for if a citizen, a resident of Milton or someone who's in Milton, they feel like their rights have been violated or they were treated unfairly by a Milton police officer? What is the process for that citizen to to make a complaint and then also have their complaint heard through a hearing or some type of process? It's a rather long uh, and involved process that, that we have uh, because we want to be very thorough in how we investigate any complaint of misconduct. Uh, as a matter of fact, the internal affairs was a large part of my experience. I spent five years as an internal affairs investigator and a year as a commander uh, of an internal affairs unit in a major city police department. So certainly when I came to Milton, I looked at our policies and procedures involving internal affairs. And um, while it did officer, uh, offer an avenue of redress, I felt like there were some things that we could do better. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we take complaints from any source, including anonymously. Uh, we investigate those to the fullest. Uh, we do uh, extensive interviews with, uh, with folks that complain, any witnesses, uh, any internal witnesses, certainly the officers involved. Uh, that uh, goes once the investigation is complete, uh, it's written up, and then a board hearing is set. Uh, we take into account all of the interviews, all of the information that we we're able to gather, and then a chain of command um, board of an, a peer officer, of a um, sergeant, a lieutenant, and a captain, and the captain oversees the board. And we listen to all the facts, and then that board makes a recommendation and then sends that up to me. And I can either uh, agree with the recommendation mm-hmm. or adjust as I feel is necessary. Do you feel that is the best process? Yes, absolutely. Uh, matter of fact, I, I just wrote an article for the Georgia Association of Chiefs of Police, and I talked about this model and how well it's working uh, within the Milton Police Department and my experience with it. Uh, in, in other agencies and other agencies throughout the, the, the country use this as well. Uh, I, I think it allows for a fair redress of complaints. I think it's both fair to the citizen and fair to the officer. And another component of this is we keep the citizen informed during the investigation. And we also let them know the outcome of the investigation as well. Chief, as we begin to wrap up tomorrow, it is expected that former Minnesota police officer Derek Chauvin will be sentenced. When you think back to last year and everything that happened uh, regarding the murder of George Floyd, what conversations did you have with your department or your officers that you can share as it relates to that? Many see that as being pivotal 
in changing or, or enhancing community or effective community policing. But what did you all talk about? Um, certainly with, with a department like the Mount Police Department, we, we have a very close relationship with our community members, a very positive relationship. I think we enjoy uh, quite a bit of trust and legitimacy in the community. So it, it was a bit um, frustrating, I think, for our officers to see law enforcement uh, in such a negative light. Uh, and certainly something like that would not be characteristic of all. So that that, that was disheartening at, uh, to, to see that. It was just gut-wrenching. Um, so that, that had an effect, I think, on, on all of us as citizens and as uh, police officers. But I had more intense conversations with our citizenry mm-hmm. because it brought a lot uh, of questions about what does the Milton Police Department do in these types of situations? And I was uh, fortunately able to provide them with um, very solid policies that we have. Uh, we've not for years um, allowed chokeholds, for instance. That's never been a part of our use of force policy in recent history. Uh, we are a nationally certified uh, uh, accredited organization, which um, which offers a, in itself a very strong policy framework. Uh, and also uh, out of these conversations spring the uh, the chief's advisory board, which has been very positive. So a lot of positive uh, came out of those conversations and we were able to educate our citizens uh, on a lot of the really positive things we were doing within our police department. And finally, Chief Austin, as relates to the scenarios which are going to bolster de-escalation and defensive tactics knowledge, how do you all plan to gauge then the effectiveness of this type of training? Well, we are, as you said, we are a smaller agency. Um, we have very little uh, uses of force in general. But, of course, to, 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 to me as the chief, if there's anything that we can do to avoid using force, I, I want to apply resources uh, into that type of training. So we look nationally uh, at some of the uh, the de-escalation studies that have taken place. As a matter of fact, there was one uh, that was released last fall by the University of Cincinnati uh, criminologist uh, Robin Engel uh, was a funded uh, study in, in Louisville, and uh, they found um, uh, quite significant reductions in uses of force after de-escalation training. So I think it's something we're already doing well in Milton. We hire officers with a disposition uh, to be able to, to have the interpersonal skills to, to handle very stressful situations, but this, will, this training will just allow them to enhance those skills and, and keep them fresh as we, you know, these are, these are perishable skills. So we want to be able to provide them the more enhanced training uh, for them to be able to do well with this. From the Milton Police Department, Chief Rich Austin, and we've been talking about the use they're going to use from funding from a grant to help officers with de-escalation tactics and other skill sets. Chief, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cf.org.
greateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Here's how the National Association of City Transportation Officials define what our next segment is all about. Parklets are public seating platforms that convert curbside parking spaces into vibrant community spaces. That's it. And the concept was even talked about in a 2018 TEDx talk from Reno, Nevada. It was from a small business owner named Nellie Davis. Parklets are just a two-parking space change that a community can make to revitalize the entire streetscape and take ownership of an area. Not only have they proven to increase foot traffic and encourage social interaction, but they put life back into concrete. And it's the absence of this type of vibrancy that allows blight to set in. Hmm. Life back in the concrete. Joining me now from the city of Atlanta is Tim Keene, Commissioner of Planning and Community Development, and Vanessa Lira, Assistant Director in the Office of Design. Welcome to the program, both of you. I really appreciate it. Listen, I gave a brief definition of parklets. Uh, Commissioner Keene, I'll start with you. Can you give a more detailed design description of a parklet? Well, the introduction you provided was excellent. Um, That's simple, huh? It's what we were, we're doing here in Atlanta. The one thing I'd say, though, Rose, is that and it's important to focus on the the very specific changes that happen on the street when mm-hmm. you when you create a space like this. But I want to make one broader comment, which is the work that we're doing with small business owners in Atlanta to use parking spaces for seating and for people to sit and whether they're eating or not um, is really just it's part of what we must do in Atlanta. You know, like our big challenge as a city is to make walking and and riding bikes and use of transit Mm -hmm. more pleasant for people in the city because we've designed a city so far almost entirely based on driving and we have to shift completely to a city that is designed for walking and, and cycling and getting to transit and this is it's details like this that really matter this is the difference between success and failure when it comes to this, making places like this in the city. All right. Well, let me bring in Vanessa Lear, Assistant Director in the Office of Design, because I'm curious, when we talk about these parklets, can the designs vary? I've seen some drawings where they're real nice. They have nice uh, tables and benches, and that might even be covered, and there's some, you know, plants along the way. So the design can vary. Is that, am am I explaining that correctly? Yeah, that's correct. The design can certainly vary and the price point can certainly vary as well. And so um, you've seen probably in places like San Francisco where they've spent um, a lot of time creating very unique ones um, that are specific to that location, that have different seating types. And so uh, our focus here was to get as many on the ground as we could as fast as possible because of the pandemic. And so the approach was slightly different, but they're certainly in a more permanent condition. You can get as creative as you'd like. Well, let me ask you all this. Neither one of you can tackle this first. Is there a specific type of street 
infrastructure-wise that these parklets may work best if where they're located? I mean, what's an idea street? I'm imagining, are we talking about a, a one-way street? And also, you all know parking in the city of Atlanta. And so when folks hear, you what, you're going to take parking spaces? So for our listeners who, you know, are maybe giving y'all a little side eye right now because of that, what is the idea street infrastructure-wise for a parklet? You want to speak to that, Vanessa? Sure, yeah. Obviously, the first thing that needs to happen is there needs to be an existing parking space there in order for it to be converted. So that's our first layer of eligibility. Um, But really, we found that they work best when it's in a location that has a little bit of foot traffic already, Mm -hmm. whether it's because there's a restaurant there or it it could be um, all sorts of different reasons why someone would want to stop at that particular location. So there being a reason for someone to want to rest at that spot is really helpful for it to be um, vibrant and successful. And we've also found that if you pair it with a community organization or with a business that's adjacent to it, that's going to be taking care of it. That also really um, um, helps. And as far as the infrastructure, really, it's just making sure that the parking space is there and that it's in an area um, where people are going to be walking by it. Are they mobile? Can they be moved with ease? There certainly are ones that can be moved with ease. The ones that we have right now, which are our are, are temporary version, they can be moved easily. Um, the barriers are water filled. So once you drain the water, they're really light. Once you fill up with water, it can't be moved as easily. Um, and so that's certainly something if it doesn't work in a particular location, we can always try it out in a different place. And that we have done that in the past. And where are some of these parklets located right now within the city of Atlanta? We have them in a lot of different neighborhoods, Home Park, Sweet Auburn, Kirkwood, Cascade Heights, Summerhill, Midtown, Virginia Highland, downtown Cabbage Town, really all over. Um, there's one in Grant Park. We have them in several different locations. Commissioner King, you mentioned that these parklets should be viewed to be beneficial in terms of transit and mobility mobility enhancements. But here's a question, too, in terms of the, the, the cost for this. Would the city pay for these parklets or if a business wanted one or a business district wanted some parklets, who picks up the tab for this? And how much are we talking about per parklet? Well, this particular program is one that this, that we are paying for. We we generate revenue through an agreement with MARTA that we uh, that we generate through advertisements that are on the bus shelters in the city. So we have a way of funding this particular program that is from a very specific piece of revenue that we generate in partnership with MARTA. And the total that we've invested so far in this, in all of these locations, the total amount is $100,000. We're going to invest more, though. The the locations that we have out there now are, as Vanessa said, wanted to get them out there quickly, so they're fairly simple. But we will invest more in these so that they become uh, more intricate and and thoughtfully designed, so there'll be more investment in them. But the partnership with MARTA and the revenue that we're investing in this is, is we think, very appropriate. Because as I said, when you, if you're going to expect a vibrant street, which is needed in order for more people to walk and ride their bike and use transit for transportation, then this is what helps with that. You know, it is is these kinds of investments that make a street a place people want to be. And so it seems like a small, a very small amount to invest in 
this big issue we have around transportation in Atlanta. Given with folks wanting, obviously, more bike lanes, obviously, we have folks on scooters, uh, we have the bus, obviously, MARTA operating. And Commissioner King, you and I have had this conversation before about Atlanta streets and the infrastructure. How do you respond, and either you or, or Director Lyra can answer this, how do you respond to someone who says, how can you ensure that there won't be, one, some overcrowdedness or just plain clutter, and will you also have bike racks available? Because if you want to increase more foot traffic or folks riding their bikes and they want to stop at a parklet, Will there be a bike rack or, or something similar? Would each parklet be designed to maybe house uh, one or two bikes as well? And then also, what about for folks with um, with with disabilities here? Yeah, I can touch on on those things. And so, uh, speaking to the bikes, that's definitely feedback that we've gotten from both from the survey that we have out as well as from business owners. And so, that's something that we are looking into um, for the future. When it comes to accessibility, the temporary version, we have a ramp that gets you down to um, to road level. But one of the upgrades that we're going to be bringing in this summer is a deck that's going to make the parklet flush with the sidewalk. So there will mm-hmm. not be an accessibility issue. It will be at the same level. Um, that was something that just takes a little bit longer because they are made to order. And so that wasn't something that we were able to provide within a couple of months, but that's that's what we're working on for an upgrade for the summer. And then your third question about the maintenance, that's something that you've we've learned. It really is important to partner with a mm-hmm. business or an organization that's going to be there day-to-day maintaining and making sure that it's being well utilized. And that's been very successful when we have done it that way. So in a sense, this is a trial run for Parklets. And how would you all evaluate the success, the effectiveness of it? Will you wait to hear feedback from the community, from business owners? How will you assess this? Well, we have both a survey out, like I mentioned, that um, is out on the parklet. So if you're using the parklet, you can answer the survey. We've also been speaking with business owners. And this is the second round of parklets that we're doing. We did do a different parklet a few years ago. So we have already learned significantly from that. Um, and we are, you know, thinking through what type of upgrades we might want to do based on that, that feedback that we've received. Um, and I think it's also a trial run in terms of not just the success of the park in terms of how people want them, but just also in terms of if this is good for our streets, which we really believe that it is. And so we're working with HLDOT, which is a transportation department, very closely on that. Um, with our team that works with the the local businesses as well. So there's a team of people that's really making sure that these are going to be successful and, and hopefully be able to uh, be on the ground beyond the pandemic. That's a feedback, feedback that we've heard over and over again is that people want these to be more permanent. They want them to be long lasting beyond just this uh, emergency situation that we have currently. And the great thing about Atlanta is that we don't necessarily go through all four seasons. But as we wrap up, will these parklets be able to withstand, uh, you know, Georgia can have some, Atlanta can have some great weather and we can have some not so nice weather. Yes, they will be able to definitely um, withstand the the weather. We've had similar situations, um, both with the parklet that we've done in Grant Park that was before this round, as well as with the boardwalk that we have. Uh, downtown that are on the ground year round. Um, there are certain cities that do have to remove them during winter, but mm-hmm. we don't believe that that will be the case with our 
weather conditions. And I have a, a email from a listener who wants to know, will these parklets, they won't disturb the bus booths and in the, in the bus stops where folks can sit down, will it? No, that is one of the eligibility requirements. It has to be 100 feet away from, from a bus stop. So we'll certainly not preclude that. Tim, Commissioner Tim Keene, I'll give you the last word. You are always talking about how to improve Atlanta's transit and mobility enhancement. As we wrap up and say goodbye, you see Parkless being very instrumental in that. I think it's an important element of, of, of many elements that, that we have to employ in Atlanta. To your earlier point, Rose, about the city becoming more congested, we all live in a very fast-growing region, and we have a fast-growing city. And we all need to get into the mindset of congestion is going to need to be part of our lives. And how do we enhance the street life of the city as we grow and become more congested? And this is part of that. All right. Tim Keene, Commissioner of Planning and Community Development, and Vanessa Lira, Assistant Director in the Office of Design. Thank you both for taking time. I really appreciate it. Good information about Parklets. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. It was this news as shared by Novavax's president and CEO, Stanley Eric, that could lead to another approved coronavirus vaccine. The vaccine works in 93%. If you look at just the variants, the vaccine was 93% effective. Now, this two-shot COVID-19 vaccine made by Novavax was used in trials when the alpha coronavirus variant, first identified in the U.K., was widespread here in the U.S. But now the Delta variant is now set to become dominant in the U.S. There's a lot of questions about the Novavax vaccine. And joining me now to talk all about this is Dr. Harry Hyman, Program Director and Clinical Associate Professor in Georgia State University's Department of Health, Policy, and Behavioral Sciences in the School of Public Health. You've seen him all over the place, CNN, MSNBC, and now he comes to Closer Look. Dr. Hyman, welcome. Thank you very much, Rose. Before we dive into discussing this new Novavax vaccine, um, here in our state, Governor Brian Kemp has signed an executive order that will end the COVID-19 public health emergency effective July 1st. Dr. Hyman, your reaction to that? Is that too soon, you think? Well, um, you know, I, I think ideally you'd have a, a phased approach to walking back some of the executive orders. The, the fact of the matter is uh, the governor had a lot more expansive power than he used in the first place. So as opposed to other states that took advantage of things like mask mandates uh, and other uh, efforts to, to reduce and mitigate the impact of the pandemic, um, our state uh, leadership chose not to do that in the first place. So at, at this point in time, um, there isn't much substance left to the uh, executive orders in place. I don't see much difference there, but I think we're we're at a time where we need to be very cautious about how we move forward. And then nationwide, President Joe Biden was hopeful for a 70 percent vaccination rate by the 4th of July. When you think about that, that was the, the goal. And right now where we are in this nation, which I think, depending on whom you ask, is maybe not quite 50 percent. But is it a major achievement anyway? that we've gotten at least 150 million plus fully vaccinated. Look, I think if you think about where we were a year ago uh, and the prospect of rolling out a vaccine 
the the kind of catastrophic impact this pandemic has ha has had. Uh, how, in many ways, we didn't respond as a nation uh, or or uh, in our state in, in ways that we might have. Um, I think it's incredible that we are where we are today. Um, I think the other thing it's important for people to realize when they see both national and state numbers mm -hmm. um, is that there are tremendous differences both across the country and, and within states. Uh, and there are profound disparities and inequities in many of those numbers that need to be looked at. You know, and Dr. Hyman, now with this uh, Novavax and the other COVID-19 vaccines, we know the nation's come a long way. But based on what you just talked about, what significant changes do you believe are in order in terms of how we govern the structures of our public health institutions? What's been the, what do you hope is a takeaway through all of this? Well, I, I, I think there are a few important takeaways from me, Rose. One is the, the critical need to invest in public health infrastructure and workforce. Uh, for decades, we have, uh, as a nation and as a state, been underinvesting in public health, underinvesting in the kinds of systems that absolutely need to be in place and the workforce that needs to be in place to respond to a pandemic like this. So one of the reasons that uh, CDC at the federal level and our State Department of Public Health and local public health has, has come under a lot of uh, criticism is for failure to respond quickly enough or substantively enough. But candidly, can, can, did it, candidly mm -hmm. there, there weren't enough boots and resources on the ground. Uh, so I think that, that we need to really take this moment to invest in that infrastructure and workforce, not just for the short term, but for the long term. Um, I think the other thing that we're all aware of is that this pandemic, like every crisis, whether natural or health, uh, exposed the profound inequities uh, in our society uh, and the fact that um, communities that are disadvantaged socially, economically, and environmentally are also the ones that predictably uh, experience the worst outcomes in, in, a, in a pandemic or, or in a natural uh, crisis. And mm -hmm. we saw this in profound ways with COVID-19. And so even with this new vaccine, which could be approved, uh, another a vaccine here in the U.S., you reviewed it. We're hearing about 90% an effective rate. But can that make a difference, you think, in changing folks' mindset? And then also then, what then should states, and on a local level, what should they do to try and get those who maybe didn't take the, the other vaccines to maybe try this one, if it's approved? Because maybe here in 90%, Maybe that, that matters to some people. What do you think? Well, I, I think, I think it's, it's tremendous that we have one more vaccine with very high uh, efficacy based on reporting from the company. You realize we haven't seen the formal reports, nor have they been reviewed by experts, nor has there actually been a submission to the FDA uh, for either an emergency use authorization or a more formal authorization. But the fact of the matter is the, the rate limiting step right now in the U.S. is not vaccine supply. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's putting resources in place to, to do uh, outreach to those communities um, with, with greatest needs and, and communities who uh, to date aren't, aren't being vaccinated at the same rates as others. Uh, you know, there's uh, Kaiser Family Foundation tracks this at a national uh, level uh, and at a state level. And, and it's very clear that, uh, for example, black and Hispanic communities, uh, other communities, that uh, experience higher social vulnerability and mm -hmm. risk uh, have, have had a 
greater impact in terms of cases and deaths by the pandemic, but actually have vaccine rates that are lower. And there are both um, access barriers and logistical barriers that are a significant piece of this. And Dr. Hyman, given a study that was just released this week indicating that the life expectancy rate, I believe, was shortened by two years for African-Americans. And when you hear something like that and they're going to attribute it to COVID-19, when you hear those type of, of that type of data and then from testing to resources for at-risk communities to the vaccination rollout, how did Georgia do, you think? Well, I think I think Georgia did the way we would expect Georgia to do, which uh, candidly was not very good. Um, G- Georgia saw the same, if not worse, disparities that other states had in terms of the, the disparate impact of this pandemic. Um, and again, I think in terms of, of, you know, when you ask about lessons learned, um, we know that to uh, narrow and eliminate health inequities, we have to match resources to need, meaning that it may require greater resources um, going to communities with greater need. Um, and hopefully that will be a, a lesson that resonates uh, at the state and local level in our state. Uh, it appears to be resonating at the federal level. Um, I'm very pleased with um, the focus the, the current administration has had uh, on equity broadly uh, and health and racial equity in particular. Uh, and I'm hearing from colleagues at CDC and elsewhere that, that there are steps being taken to meaning, meaningfully integrate more of an equity lens uh, in, in the work that's going on. Well, Dr. Hyman, folks like you, folks over at the Morehouse School of Medicine, you know, everyone that we've talked to, we've talked to CDC officials, talked to Dr. David Satcher, everyone has talked about equity and ensuring, you know, distribution as it relates to the vaccine. And everyone talks about barriers in terms of fair and equitable access for everyone in this country. But then the question that people sort of get stumped on is, or they have a different answer is, now what do we do about it? You know, I mean, for me, the answer is very clear. And I think well, that there are a lot of um, positive examples of what that looks like. If you look at um, what local public health is doing in Gwinnett, if you look at what local public health is doing in Fulton and in DeKalb, they are trying to maximize mobile units, uh, working with uh, community centers, uh, uh, church and faith-based organizations, with uh, community health centers to ensure that um, vaccine access is brought to the communities at, at, at greatest need. So we know what that looks like. Uh, we still need to do a little bit more work in terms of bringing that to scale. But I think the other thing is when you think about access to healthcare broadly, mm-hmm. um, our state continues to refuse to do uh, something that is, is, is very simple and, and, and that the federal government is actually willing to pay us to do. You're talking and about Medicaid expand, expansion. That's to expand Medicaid. I mean, you know, the, the idea that we will not only be able to do it for free, but we'll be able to do it for free and then get additional dollars to deploy elsewhere um, over the next two years. And, and, and we're still um, debating whether that's the right thing to do to me is, is, is unthinkable. As it relates to science and science has overall developed three vaccines authorized for use here in the U.S., it appears it could be Novavax is next. But what does this reveal about drug discovery and the pharma industry? I don't not to put you on a political hot seat, but you've been there before. What does that say to you? Well, I, I, I mean, I think, I think, I, I think there's, there's, there, there's both the um, tremendous upside that 
um, with the support of government resources. And I think that's a really important qualification. With the support of government resources, we, we were able to uh, roll out not only an unprecedented development um, of these vaccines, but an unprecedented rollout. Uh, and people should be reminded that, that the technology for the mRNA vaccines, for the Moderna and the Pfizer, have been developed over decades at the NIH, something that requires our taxpayer support. So I think that's critical to understand. I, I think the, 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 the underside is part of, part of the barrier to global equity and to really getting our arms around the global pandemic uh, is patents. Uh, and and um, proprietary rights to pharmaceutical companies. And mm -hmm. I think when it comes to vaccines and other critical drugs people need to survive, we need to rethink that system in a, in a powerful way. And time will not let us to even talk about when we talk about fair and equitable access for every country in the world. Dr. Harry J. Hyman, Program Director and Clinical Associate Professor in Georgia State University's Department of Health Policy and Behavioral Sciences in the School of Public Health. We're going to have you back, Dr. Hyman. Good conversation as always. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Rose. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. It's really easy. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. I also want to take this moment just to say thank you to a colleague, a mentor, and a friend, Dennis O'Hare, who, yes, has officially, I guess, retired. <laughs> Dennis, thank you so much for everything you've done for me as a journalist. I really appreciate it. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.